I happened to be on social media the other day and I saw this uh, thing written on social media. It said, uh, God loves you deeply. That's just what it said. God loves you deeply. And the person who posted it said, I know there's somebody out there that needs to hear this. And one person after another said, I need to hear that every day. I need to hear that every day. And we do, because we live in a world where you don't always notice that God loves you deeply. And sometimes it's even hard to believe that God loves you deeply. I'm sure all of us have been in those places where we said, where are you, God? Where is your love? And it's right there. It's always there for you. If you ever happen to go to Israel, to a Holy Land trip, you will probably stop at this place. This is the Jordan River. This is where they tell us that John the Baptist was baptizing people and where he baptized Jesus as well. This picture was taken the last time that I was there. And you can see, if you look closely, you can see it really hasn't changed much since the days of John the Baptist. <laughs> well, maybe it has, right? You can see the railing there, handicapped accessibility. There's places to get beverages, very convenient uh, viewing area to watch others get baptized. There's even shops there that will sell you the towel that John the Baptist used. So... No, they don't do that, but they do rent you a towel if you need a towel, things like that. And I'm guessing it didn't look anything like that. I know it didn't look anything like that when John the Baptist was there. It probably was much more reflective of him, rugged, very rugged. And uh, yeah, the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist. We've been doing a series of Bible stories. We've worked through about uh, maybe 30 Bible stories in the Old Testament. I want to kind of move into the New Testament. I want to talk to you about some Bible stories there. And you would naturally think, well, the starting place of New Testament Bible stories would have to be the birth of Jesus. What are we doing the baptism of Jesus for this morning? And the reason is because we do the birth of Jesus every Christmas, and because we celebrate Advent, we do it four times every Christmas. And so I'm going to start with the baptism of Jesus. I feel okay doing that. That's where Mark starts his gospel account of Jesus, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. And uh, there's a Bible app event for that. You can follow along if you would like to that way. I do want to mention this also. Uh, some of the concepts that I'm going to present here are coming from a far, far better preacher than I. I don't know if any of you know Alistair Begg. Any of you know Alistair Begg? Yeah, he is just a great, great preacher. And I was preparing for this message, doing research in my commentaries and so on, and I happened upon one of his sermons, and I thought I should just lip sync to that thing, but I'd have an ethical problem with doing that. Um, but this uh, sermon is actually kind of the concepts are inspired uh, by him. And uh, this is not his sermon. Don't blame him for this. But I've leaned heavily on some of his thinking uh, in preparing this sermon. As we begin, I want to ask you to use your imagination with me, okay? I want you to imagine just a local phenomenon. Pizza place in Kerwinsville. How about Brother's Pizza? Brother's Pizza has done something in your imagination absolutely unbelievable. They've invented the pizza to die for. And people have come from all around to get the pizza at Brother's Pizza, and you say, hey, we're going to go to Brother's Pizza. Let's go get it. And so you go down, and you stand in line at Brother's Pizza to get the pizza. But the line isn't just inside the building. The line isn't even just out into the parking lot. The line actually goes into the parking lot, and it stretches down Meadow Street all the way down to Filbert Street. You're standing you're standing there at the Kerwinsville Feed Store waiting for pizza two blocks away down at Brother's Pizza. You're in line, and you happen to look, and who do you see? Tony? and Rachel Williams. You're like, what? Your parents own this place, Rachel. What are you doing standing in line here? If anyone should not be in line here, it should be you. You're the last person I would anticipate seeing standing in line here. Let's go to another illustration. Let's imagine that your friend Billy has a Tesla, okay? 
You know what a Tesla is, right? It's an electric car. There's no place to put gas in a Tesla, although I have watched videos of blondes trying to put gas in their Teslas, right? Sorry if you're a blonde. I'm a redhead, so I'm just jealous, that's all, right? So your buddy, your buddy Billy, he has one, and he happened to be going down in toward Clearfield to get down to the stoplight here right on this side of Clearfield, and there at the Quickfield, you see Billy in his Tesla in line to get gas, and you know they don't sell electricity there for cars. They only sell petroleum. They only sell gas. And so you pick up your smartphone, and you say, Billy, what are you doing? Oh, I mean, I'm in line here at Quickfield. <laughs> you, you have an electric car, dummy. You should not be here. You don't, you're, you should not be in this line. You're the last person I would ever expect to see in a line for gas at Quickville with a Tesla. Let's go to a third one. You know Scott Fryer. Scott and Jackie Fryer and their family, they were in the early service this morning. About a dozen years ago, they had Fryer's Dairy, and they milked cows. Took my son up there, and he watched them milk cows. He's a city boy. He lives in Kerwinsville. And, uh, yeah. Now, I want you to imagine something. You know that Scott owns cattle, and he drinks the milk right from the cow, just about. And you happen to be in the store, and you see there Scott pushing a grocery cart. And he's in line at the checkout, and it's filled with gallon jugs of Gallagher's whole milk. You're like, what are you doing? You're the last person I would ever expect to be in line to buy milk. You have a whole farm of milk. Can't you get some milk from your cows? You're the last person that should be in this line. Okay. Now, those three scenarios might give you a little understanding of how one might feel when one sees Jesus standing in line to get baptized at the Jordan River with John the Baptist standing in the water. But there he is. Jesus is standing in line with everybody else to get baptized by John. And if you could transport yourself in time back to there, you might be tempted to go back and say, hey, Jesus, what are you doing here? These people are in line to confess their sins. You have no sin. These people are in line to repent of their evil. You've done no evil. Jesus, you were the last person. You were the last person I would expect to see in this line. But there he is. Let's work through the passage today. Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at the passage. And, and before we talk about Jesus standing in line, I just need to say this about John. <laughs> he's, he's John the Baptist, but he's not a Baptist. Okay, I, I have to say that just because it's crazy as it may sound. I'm pretty sure I've known Baptists who became Baptists because they figured John was a Baptist. If it's good enough for John, it's good enough for him. And that's not it. The reason Baptists are called Baptists is the same reason that John was called a Baptist is because they baptize. That's it. John the Baptist. He's not a Baptist. But he is a man who is on a mission. He has a really important mission to carry out. It's described in the first few verses. You're in Matthew 3. Follow along as we read. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. He is a man on a mission. And if you think about his mission, it really strikes a chord with the people. His mission, it was back there in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then verse 5 says this, 
people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is pretty serious business for John. This is pretty serious business for these people. I did a Google Maps thing where I put myself in Jerusalem and then I put it into walking mode and I went to the place that they kind of feel like this is probably where John the Baptist was on the Jordan and it said it was a 10 to 12 hour hike. It's not the kind of thing that you say to your buddy just before lunch break, hey, you want to go down and see John? I hear he's baptizing out by the Jordan. Let's go check that out. You didn't do that. It was a serious commitment to even go there. And John shows us that this mission is a heavy mission. It's something should be taken seriously. In fact, when I'm reading, starting at verse 7, I almost hear John the Baptist say this, this, this phrase, I ain't playing, man. I ain't playing. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you? to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I ain't playing. I ain't playing. This is serious stuff. And then his message kinds of transitions. In verse 11, he begins to say, there's someone else coming, someone more important than me. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, the one who's coming is Jesus. He has a winnowing fork. I have never had a winnowing fork. I've never held a winnowing fork, but I've seen pictures of winnowing forks, and I've actually seen them because my neighbor was an old chicken farmer, and he showed me one one time. It's a fork that they would use, the harvester would use, when he had his his grain gathered into a pile, and he would take this, and he'd, he'd He'd lift a strop in the air, and a grain would fall down onto a threshing floor that he had made, and a straw would go away, and then the grain would remain. And he would discard that straw. He would burn that straw and the husks and the stalks and maybe some roots that got stuck in with it, whatever. He'd burn all that, and then he would keep the grain. And what John is saying is, the one who's coming after me, he's got that fork in his hand. I ain't playing. I ain't playing. And you better not be playing either. You better be serious about this. This is John's message. This is what he's been presenting. And in the midst of that comes Jesus for baptism. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But you know what? It would seem to me, it would seem to me like Jesus is in the wrong line, you know? As Alistair Begg notes, the baptism line is for those who are seeking forgiveness, those who are wanting to confess their sins, those who need to repent of their sins. And Jesus is standing in that line. Now, among scholars, there's some uncertainty as to how John views Jesus at this moment. I'll give you a little bit of context here. You remember that John and Jesus are relatives. They're related. Some say maybe cousins. You might remember when Mary was pregnant with Jesus that her relative Elizabeth was pregnant with John. That John is John the Baptist. He's going to be John the Baptist. 
And if you remember the story in Luke where, where Mary comes to live with Elizabeth for a time, she gets to the door and she calls out, Elizabeth! She had a southern accent. <laughs> Elizabeth! Elizabeth! And Elizabeth makes the strangest remark. She says, how am I so favored that you would be here? I want to tell you, when you called out my name, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Leapt for joy. Which is it? He jumped for joy. Right? Right? It's a pretty remarkable event, isn't it? But now, three decades have passed. Jesus is 30 years old, and frankly, so far as we know, he really hasn't done anything ministry-wise. Nothing. John the Baptist, he's out there baptizing people. He's out there proclaiming. His cousin Jesus, nothing's happening. Just imagine if you would, and we don't know that this happened, but just imagine if you would, that from childhood, your cousin was told to be, you were told that he was the Messiah. And at age 30, he's done nothing to distinguish himself. If I'm John, I'm just going to be wondering what's going on. I think this is later, sometime after the baptism of Jesus, that John recognizes him. And, and you remember, he calls out, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Before I did this study this week, I had him doing that at his baptism. Like, Jesus is coming down to be baptized, and that's when John says that. But that's not accurate. If you read the Gospel of John in chapter 1, John says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. So what John is saying in chapter 1 of John, what John the Baptist is saying in chapter 1 of John, is when that dove landed on him, I knew my cousin is the Messiah. And he knew that because he says later in that same passage, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify this is God's chosen one. But now, here, in the midst of all that, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is standing in line to be baptized, and he finally gets right down to the water, and he's in the water with John. And in verse 14, the scripture reads, but John tried to deter him. There must have been something about Jesus. He hadn't seen the Holy Spirit come on him yet, but he knew this, I don't know, I don't feel like I should be baptizing this guy. So as John tried to deter him, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? You're in the wrong line, Jesus. This is not the line for you. There needs to be a whole different line that ends with you, and I feel like I'm the one that needs to be in that line. But as the story unfolds, we see Jesus is in the right line because Jesus' baptism has an important purpose. It's mysterious, I mean, wondering why Jesus is in that line. He can't be looking for forgiveness of sin. That's what everyone else is there for. He has no sin. The Bible teaches that again and again. But when John tries to deter Jesus in verse 15, Jesus says a really important phrase. We're going to hear this phrase again and again today because it really is the heart of the message today that I have for you. In verse 15, it says, Jesus replied, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. That's the phrase that we're going to spend some time on. To fulfill all righteousness. Now, as soon as this baptism happens, we, we see this is a pretty big deal. 
this baptism. I mean, until now, it's just a lot of dust and a lot of dirt and a lot of people in robes and sandals and a lot of water and a lot of mud and a lot of getting out and no towels. That's kind of what it's been up until this point. But when we look at it, what happens next? It's a pretty big deal. Verse 16, Jesus doesn't hang around. It says, as soon as he was baptized, he went up out of the water. But as he climbs on the shore, the entire Godhead is manifest. That is no small thing. Listen in the middle of verse 16. It says, at that moment, heaven was opened. That's no small thing. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. The light must have turned on in John the Baptist's head right about then, right? And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. There's the son, Jesus, coming up out of the water. There's the father's voice. This is my son, whom I love. And there's the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and lighting upon the son. I got to tell you, Jehovah's Witnesses and others who deny the triune nature of God, they go through a lot of heretical gymnastics to try to discard that incident. But there it is. The father, the son, the Holy Spirit. And it kind of reminds me of other big event in Scripture. I mean, it reminds me of creation. If you happen to read the opening verses of the Gospel of John, you read about Jesus, the Word, and God, who I've always kind of felt that's the Father there. It says this, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is. God the Son, the Word, and God the Father. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, here's creation, through Him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So there's the Son, the Word, God, and creation. Now, of course, in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, it says in verse 2. There's the Spirit. The triune God is manifest at creation, in creating, and the same triune God is manifest at Jesus' baptism. This is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal that's happening right here. But I still got that question. What are you doing in that line, Jesus? What are you doing in that line? Let me make some suggestions and answer that question. The first one is this. Jesus is identifying himself with us in that line. He is in that line for us. Every other person in that line is there for themselves. They are there because they own something, (laughs) They own a sense of guilt and shame in their heart. They are there because they're hoping that somehow or other this stain of guilt can be washed away by this baptism that's about to happen. They are there to deal with their own sin. Jesus is not. He's not there for that purpose. Jesus is in line not as an individual, but he's actually in line as a a representative. He's not there as a sinner, but he's in line with sinners. So, a couple of years ago, I was doing a funeral at a graveside at Pine Grove Bethel Cemetery. Every time I practiced that, I made it Pine Grove Bethel Seminary. Pine Grove Bethel Cemetery. You know where that is? It's the, the Pine Grove Presbyterian Church used to be there. They tore it down a few years ago. So I was there at that graveside, and the deceased was a Korean War veteran, and so the Um, VFW was there to perform their ceremony. And just as they were about to start, a car pulled in and two strangers got out. And the older gentleman was leading and then the younger man following behind had a military-style haircut. Now, I can't recall the exact details of the 
conversation, but I got to tell you, I was listening, I was eavesdropping with all my might. What are those guys doing here, you know? Because that's an odd thing, right? This is what the conversation in my memory went like. So this is my grandson. He is leaving for West Point on Monday. We happened to drive by and we saw you had to flag. We knew what you were about to do. And we were wondering, he was wondering, could he please stand in with you men today? He has his uniform right there in the car. And the man said, yeah, he'd be welcome to do that. So there's that young man. He's identifying with those who have already fought. He is identifying with those soldiers who are there, no doubt, sensing pain and loss every time they do that service. He's identifying with the deceased in whatever battles he might have fought, whether they were in Korea or in Alaska or in Kerbinsville. He's identifying with the deceased. He's not in line for himself. He is in line at that memorial for the veterans. Jesus, he is in this line along the banks of the Jordan, and he isn't standing there for himself. He is in this line for the same reason he was in the manger. He is in this line to be one of us. He is in this line to identify with us. Jesus is standing there for all of us, identifying with us in our thirst for righteousness. Identifying with us in our disgust for our own sin. He's identifying with us in our sense of guilt, in our sense of shame. And he is showing his willingness to be counted as one of us. That's what he's doing in the line. And he'll do it again. And he'll do it again and again and again and again. He will stand in the line with us so many times that in less than three years, people are going to start saying, you know that Jesus of Nazareth guy? You know, he's a wino and a glutton. He's a drunk. I only ever see him hanging out with the scum of the earth. That's the only place I ever see him. I would never hang out with the people he hangs out with. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to identify with us, and he is loving us in our approach to God. Here's the phrase. He's standing in the line because he's fulfilling all righteousness for us. He takes that whole idea. You've heard a phrase. It's a popular phrase today, virtue signaling. You know what that is? It's like when I say, well, I would never do that. It's nothing new. The old, <laughs> oh, I won't go there. I've heard people before in church context say, well, I never, bless your heart, you virtue signaler, you. <laughs> Jesus takes the whole concept of virtue signaling and reveals it for what it is, putrid self-righteousness. He says, nope, <laughs> I identify with sinful humankind. He's in the line at his baptism to identify with you and me. And he's there as well because baptism by nature is a starting place. He's initiating his ministry. The baptism of Jesus is sort of a launch pad from which the total sum of the redemptive work of Christ moves forward. Right there, at his baptism. It's the revealing of a commitment that God has to his divine plan A plan that was intended from before the beginning of time. The Father, the Son, 
the Holy Spirit, in eternity past, agreed together what each one would do in terms of the redemption of humankind. Three years after he is baptized, Jesus will say to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. It is as though a seed has been planted in the mind of God by the mind of God. He came up with this idea. And it has been in process since the Garden of Eden. And it has been developing through the days of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and to Moses and all through the judges. And, and it has been unfolding through, <coughs> excuse me, it has been unfolding through David and the prophets. And finally here at Jesus' baptism, this flower of God's plan is beginning to take bloom in a very specific, dramatic, and meaningful way. Because from this baptism, Jesus will walk back into the wilderness and there he'll be tempted by the devil. Strike one, devil. Strike two, devil. Strike three, devil. You're out. Jesus doesn't cave at all. (laughs) He'll go from there and call his his 12 disciples. And he will teach them the way of the kingdom. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Finally, in the end, he'll come down that that hillside on Palm Sunday from the Mount of Olives. And he'll come into Jerusalem and into the temple. And he'll turn over the tables. But he's not just turning tables. He's going to turn the world upside down before he's done. And three years from this date, he will go to the cross. Just before he goes there, he'll say something like this. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. This is a launch pad from which he does this. What's Jesus doing in line? Launching the redemption of humankind. And standing in that line, the entire Godhead actually makes a proclamation. Verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment... Heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. That information isn't for Jesus. It's not that God the Father's like, attaboy, buddy. Pat on the head. You done good. I mean, I'm sure that the Godhead does have those kinds of conversations, because there's love in the Godhead. This information is not for Jesus. This information is for the entire universe. It's for the cosmos. It's a proclamation. It's for John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was told he would see this kind of thing. And it's for all those people who are standing around watching. It's for them as well. It's for all of Jerusalem and Judea. It is for the uttermost parts of the earth. It is for you, and it is for me, the proclaiming of the identity of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He proclaims a couple of things. His distinct nature, although he's just gone down into the water, And he maybe even is trying to get the water out of his ear at this point. This is Jesus, God's son. And don't ever think of him as anything less. Jesus stands alone in history as the only begotten of the Father. And because of that singularity, because of his divine and his human nature, he can do what no one else can do. He can redeem humankind. And his baptism at that moment proclaims that distinct nature. Moreover, his baptism proclaims that he is, he is fulfilling the Godhead's essential mission. He's here to please the Father. He's on mission. 
Ever wonder what the mission of Jesus is? Listen to Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, and he's speaking of himself. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And that tells you that you were loved. It tells you that you were cherished, that you were valued by God himself. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It proclaims the Father's eternal love. You know, when you and I are baptized, we're proclaiming our love for Christ. And at baptism, this baptism, standing in this line, Jesus is proclaiming his love for us. He's standing in line to fulfill all righteousness. How does he do that? How does he do that? He does it in his obedience. Jesus obeys, theologians say, passively. We've talked about this countless times, the passive obedience and the active obedience of Christ. We always talk about the passive obedience of Christ. That is when he, as a sheep being led to the slaughter, opened not his mouth and allowed himself to be crucified. That's passive obedience, and he did that for you and me, obediently dying for our sins, voluntarily doing that. But Jesus also obeys the plan actively, obediently doing that which is right, the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in him. Jesus fulfills all righteousness, and he does it for us, for us. I said this before, if your, life, if, if your life was a whiteboard and you'd been living your life and scribbling all over it, just some imbecilic gibberish nonsense and it just looked awful. Jesus doesn't just come along and wipe that away. He does wipe that away. His passive obedience pays for all your sin and it cleans the whiteboard from top to bottom. But his active obedience is when he writes the good things in there so that the righteousness that he does belongs to you because you are identified with him. Wow! That blows my mind! I don't usually yell in sermons. There's a couple of you, you've only been here a couple times and I don't yell in sermons usually, but that just lights my torch. That Jesus would actively obey, stand in line for me, so that when we identify with him, his obedience becomes our own. It becomes ours. And so when you take the bread, you're saying, I rely on you and your fulfillment of all righteousness, Jesus. I am not relying on me. You must never ever, ever stand before the throne of God and say, I didn't do a lot of bad things. That's relying on you. You must never, ever stand before the judge of all the earth and say, I was pretty good. I helped a lot of people. That's relying on you. (laughs) His obedience becomes your own when you identify and rely upon him. I rely on you and your fulfillment of all righteousness, Jesus. And when you take the cup, you're saying, I depend on you and your obedience on my behalf, Jesus. When you take the bread and you take the cup, you're acknowledging he stood in line for you. He was born in Bethlehem for you. He lived a perfect life for you in all righteousness. And he died on the cross putting to death sin and shame for you, and he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for you, and he intercedes at the right hand of the Father for you. For you. That's identifying with Christ. I love that. I absolutely love that. 
maybe, you know, it's possible. It's common. That you can live in the United States of America and go to church in the United States of America and never really figure that out. Because maybe the well-intentioned teacher or the well-intentioned pastor is telling you how you should dress (laughs) or telling you what kind of bad words you shouldn't say or whatever. That's fine. But this is the heart of the gospel. This is the core of our existence. This is the reason for him coming to stand there for you. And the baptism shows you that. Have you found your identity in Christ who identified with you? You know, it's not rocket science. That is the beauty of the gospel. The most simple-minded, me, can understand it. A child can understand it. It is just this reality that God loved you and Jesus came and stood in the line for you from the manger to the cross for you. And when you look at him and say, yes, I need that. I want to, I want to have that. You receive it. He gives it to you. And you identify with him. And if you ever stand before the judge of all the earth, he doesn't even say, what about that time? Do you remember that time that you did? What about that? Do you know why? Because Jesus took that all away. And when you stand before the judge of all the earth, if he were to say, what do you got for me? What do you got for me? Which he won't. <laughs> but if he were, he would say, I have all the stuff Jesus did. And he would say, that's exactly what you need. That's exactly what you need. You're identifying with the one who loved you and identified with you. If you haven't done that, I want to pray with you. If you're not sure you've done that, I want to pray with you. I want you to leave here knowing that you identify with Christ. If you're comfortable doing so, let's all stand together, shall we? I feel like you just need to know this. I'm really embarrassed that I yelled. I really don't like it when I yell. But if you know that, and here's the reason I want you to know that, not to protect myself, not to defend myself, but if you know, wow, Pastor Steve yelled, and he doesn't like it when he yelled, it must have been really important. That's what I want you to hear. It's just really important that the Lord of all the earth would stand in for you, for me. How cool is that? How cool is that? Let's talk to him. Father, we need one to stand in for us. For we are a people who don't know our right hand from our left. We are a people who come from a people and identify with a people who call good evil and evil good. We are virtue signalers extraordinaire. We find such pleasure in finding someone who's not as good as us so we feel better about ourselves. And that is an empty, empty feeling. We dismiss all of that. We come to the water. We come to you, Jesus. And we say, these are our sins. We confess them. We don't like these things about us. And so we would turn away from them in repentance. We trust you. We believe that you, Jesus, that you stood in line for us. 
that you hung on the cross for us, that you rose from the dead for us, and that you intercede on our behalf at the right hand of the Father for us. We trust you and we will follow you. Here's our heart. Take it. For it's in Jesus' name, your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we advance the slide? That would be great. Please be seated. So if you received your cup, is there anyone who needs a cup? They didn't get one this morning? Anybody? I don't see any? Okay, good. If you didn't, there's some in the back there. Kim was waiting with some. So this which we hold in our hand, it might feel to you like it's an evidence of COVID. Because <laughs> we used to have those nice little containers that we used. We'll get back to that, I feel sure. It's not an evidence of COVID. It's an evidence of the one who stood in for you. The wafer on the top, it represents his body, which stood in line for you. And the blood inside, the grape juice inside, it represents his blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sin for you. We're going to ask an elder to pray in just a moment, but in the quietness of your heart, I want you to think about where you are with God right now. Because I don't want this just to be the time that we take communion and go home. Who wants that, right? Who came here for that? I want you to just think about where you are with God right now. Did you need him to stand in for you? Have you asked him to make that yours? Have you chosen to identify with him? And if you did that a long time ago, or if you did it just now, 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago, great. Then talk to him about how you can live that out well. How can you follow him as his disciple? And I'm going to ask Laurel if she would just play quietly while we give some quiet, introspective service to God, looking to hear from him, evaluating our own lives. to ask one of the elders if at this time uh, David would you please thank God for his body the body of Christ and then we'll take it together David you'd like to take out your wafer, we'll take it together. The body of Christ. Scripture says that after he took the bread, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement in my blood. It's a covenant of grace, a covenant of his love, of his forgiveness. I'm going to ask Josh if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ, and then we'll take it together. Josh? 
God, we thank you that that your word is true. That it's not a fairy tale, it's not just a figment of our imagination, but it's solid. It's eternal. There's nothing on earth, God, besides your word that we can have that reliance, that dependence. So God, may we may we be foolish enough to believe it. Hmm. Amen. Amen. The blood of Christ.